You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. If you will, please stand with me. As we stand upon the solid rock of God's word, and today it's not epic, it's ordinary, but life-changing. Notice this, he, Paul, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this ordinary story about two women who were having a disagreement, Lord, I pray that This text and these instructions from Paul will go deep inside of our hearts and minds and guard us, guard us from the temptations, guard us from the difficulties that might come our way, and Lord, help us to grow together as the body of Christ to serve you and to preach the gospel all around the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know. Do we have any uh, we have any preachers' kids out there? Any any missionary kids or preachers' kids? Can can you wave at me, Zach? Please wave at me. Okay, thank you. Let's see if you claim me. We, I was surprised how many like like I asked for this in the first service, and like in every section there were preachers' kids. So so Zach, I want you to know there's people to commiserate with. But nonetheless, a lot of preachers' kids and missionary kids here. And one of the things I just did it um, that that our kids hate is when we draw attention to them from the pulpit. Um, so just got guilty of that. But nonetheless, when, when I was thinking about Philippians 4, 2 through 3, it's almost like, it's almost like Paul is calling out his kids. And, and what's important about this is, is that he's telling people, he's telling these two ladies uh, to stop fighting, and it's in a letter to the whole church. You know, it's, it's like calling people out by name from the pulpit. I heard there was an issue this week, so let's deal with it in front of, you know, uh, God and all of his people, all right? It's one of those moments. So I think we can put this story as ordinary and in the category of awkward. Uh, and it's awkward, but I think that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us from this story that we really don't know the rest of the story. We don't know what the issue was, and that's not important. What is important are the exhortations, and in particular in verse 2, Paul is telling these two ladies to agree in the Lord. I believe that the differences of opinion here, whatever it was, I don't think it was necessarily a minor squabble, though it could have been, you know, like a color of the carpet kind of argument. I don't think it was like that. I think it was probably something more substantive, like a difference of opinion on how to do ministry in the church of Philippi. It was something pretty serious because these two ladies who had been serving Jesus alongside of Paul and many other believers were really struggling. And we are reminded when we read this letter, it is, again, the nod of the familiar. There is an ordinariness to this text, 
Because we know that to serve the Lord with people means that sometimes we're going to have disagreements. And so what we have here, and let me just kind of sort of summarize what I'm going to say to you here today. Paul begins with an illustration of what happens when we let our guard down. In other words, two sisters in Christ here have a disagreement. So that's an illustration of what happens when we're not guarding our hearts. And then if you'll look at verses 4 through 7, we have there some instruction for us, some real basic, simple, easy to apply, as it were, instruction on how to keep our guard up. So we see the illustration of what happens when we don't, but then Paul isn't going to leave us hanging there. He wants us to learn how to relate to one another. In fact, if you want to rewind the tape a little bit to Philippians 2.5, remember that Paul has exhorted us to have the mind of Christ. And what does that mean? Well, I I think we could spend uh, eternity, and we will, trying to understand exactly what that means. But here in chapter 4, I think we're going to have some very practical application for what it looks like, not only to achieve or to work towards having the mind of Christ, but to live out the mind of Christ. And so as we think about our hearts and minds, I want you to realize how important it is today for us to apply these truths. Uh, When you go to Walmart this afternoon, God bless you if you do. Um, I think that's on my list today to go get groceries and stuff. Yay. Um, You're probably going to lock your car because you don't want it stolen, all right? They'll probably still get your catalytic converter, but it's all right. You know, at least your car will still be there. Um, uh, But we do that because we want to guard it. We put our money in a bank because we assume that it's going to be safer there than under our bed, under the mattress, right? We guard the things that are most important to us. And I think it's interesting. We guard the things that matter most. We understand that in a physical sense. And then we leave our hearts wide open and exposed. We are not guarding our hearts as we ought to, and that's why so often we are brokenhearted. And if you're here today in ministry and life and whatever the universe has brought a little bit of brokenheartedness to you, I want you to know, join the club. If you walk with Jesus, that doesn't mean you walk without pain. You're going to have friction because the world is a place of friction. And so we need to hear these words from the Lord so that we can understand what it looks like for us to guard our hearts and get better for the sake of the kingdom. So three things we're going to look at this morning. First, that it is possible to agree in the Lord. So I'm going to begin there, that it's, it's possible for us to agree in the Lord. Second, we're going to learn how God's way of life is the path we must walk. And that's where I'm going to walk through some of those basic exhortations beginning in verse 4. And then we're going to finish with the peace that passes all understanding and how that is available to us. And we want to try to understand, ironically, uh, a peace that passes all understanding. So that's a tall order, probably won't be able to do that last one, but I'm going to try because I believe these are all important things for us if we're serious about guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Let's take a look at this first idea of the capacity to agree in the Lord. The only way to overcome our differences is to seek the deep, deep love of Jesus. And if you look back at chapter 4, verse 1, if you have your copy of Scripture today, I exhort you to keep it open because we're going to actually look at it and let these words speak to us. Notice what it says. Therefore, my brothers, verse 1, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Notice this. Stand firm thus in the Lord, 
my beloved. Now, he says that right before he tears into Euodia and Syntyche. He, right before he gives them this, this kind of hard word, he tells the church to stand firm in the Lord. Now, obviously, he's saying that because not everybody is standing firm in the Lord. And one of the areas, verse 2, we see it right there. We have two sisters in Christ that are not agreeing in the Lord. And thus, Paul is entreating them to agree in the Lord because that is not a picture of standing firm in the gospel. I believe it's important for us to realize that these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, and uh, what names those are, wonderful Greek names, um, very easy to pronounce, obviously, here. Um, but I think they were core members of the church. I would even go as far to say key leaders in the ministry of the church. And the reason I would say that is because the text indicates it. Notice Paul says, you know, to his true companion, and that's a, a discipler, I'll talk about that in a minute, in the church. He says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with, and he goes on to all these other people in the church. Now, I want you to realize that this word labored can also mean uh, fought. In other words, we fought side by side. It's almost like he's saying, these women have been in the foxholes of ministry with me and the other key leaders in Philippi. Um, it is time for them to agree in the Lord that what they are disagreeing about is causing trouble for the whole church. Ergo, it's a letter to a whole church calling out to people in the church. The reason why is because the disagreement was not a personal one, but it was a public one. This was not something that nobody knew about. It was something that everybody knew about, and thus Paul had to address it. Who is the true companion? We have no idea. It was probably the pastor of the church. It was definitely an elder or a leader in the church. And so there is a subtle hint here in the text that when troubles come into the church, there needs to be leaders in the church, shepherds and pastors and those who are called to lead, to mediate such conflict, to jump in headfirst into relational storms and make a difference. So why do we have leadership? Why do we recognize pastors, elders? Why do we recognize deacons? Because we need to have people that we go to uh, to help us through. Because I'm here to tell you that, that life can be messy and we need one another and God gifts certain people with the ability to just um, mediate and help. And so that's who the true companion is here. I love this passage because it shows Paul's pastoral heart. Now, when you read Paul sometimes, like in the book of Galatians, one of his early letters, I mean, this guy uh, is just, you know, hitting hard and, and talking real straight, you know, just a straight talking kind of guy. And that's okay because I'm going to tell you the Galatians, I mean, oh, foolish Galatians. I guess they were acting like fools. Anybody that's got kids probably seen that before. They're acting like fools. They needed to be called out. And I think there's foolish behavior here too. But notice that Paul doesn't call them out in the same way. There is a tenderheartedness here. In fact, there's no direct commands in this. He pleads with them. So isn't this interesting? We have a situation where there is emotional tension. We have conflict in the church. But Paul doesn't add to the emotion he, he, as far as negatively by, by, by you know, getting angry or, or being assertive. But notice what he does. He just pleads with them. And I believe this is true. The only way for comprehensive healing to take place is when Christians have the will to reconcile. In other words, we need to make sure we want that. 
that like our goal is to see reconciliation in the church. Now, Paul doesn't take sides, but he does insist that these sisters need to be on the same side. And by the way, that's Jesus' side. This is key. Many times when we have disagreements, we are trying to, to make a case. And maybe we've got a good one to make. But ultimately, if we believe we are a part of the body of Christ, the ultimate goal isn't to be on the right side in terms of my side or your side, but to be on Jesus' side. And Jesus, if you take a close look at what he came to this earth to do, he came to reconcile all sinners, all men and women to himself. Jesus is in the business of reconciliation. Therefore, ergo, we should as well be in the business of reconciliation. You want to know where Jesus' side is? It's in that side where there is peace being made. Now, pastors and shepherds and leaders cannot force spiritual growth. They can only facilitate it. Shepherds show the sheep where the good pastures are, but the sheep must do the eating. As a parent who right now officially uh, is a, an empty nester with my wife, our kids are, are out of high school anyway. I think, you know, they'll hang around a little bit longer. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about is just what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a parent, and, you know, and how often you're going to fail in doing those jobs in life. And my job is to, is to feed the, the church and in my family, to feed my family, with, with healthy things emotionally, but more importantly, and, and tied with that, of course, is spiritually. Um, but at the same time, I'm realizing now that at some point, I, I can show somebody the direction where the good grass is, but it has to be the case that the sheep are willing to, that the individual, the child, whomever I'm trying to lead, goes and, and, and eats. Uh, the choice is there. And I think these two women had this opportunity. They were part of the family of God. They were sheep that Paul loved and had labored with. He had discipled them. But instead of fighting the devil, they decided to go out and fight each other. And it is inevitable when we serve Jesus in the church, we're going to have something similar to this happen. We can all, let me say this, we can all be in love with Jesus and yet not always agree in the body of Christ. We can still move forward. I told the illustration in the first service that when I was a kid and playing basketball, I wasn't all that good. But one thing that was consistently said about my play was, was one, I fouled a lot. And two, when I did, I really did do some damage because the Lord blessed me with two very sharp elbows. So if I was driving in the lane and you got in my way, you were going to get a very sharp elbow somewhere. And usually it was, you know, as painful a place as I could find on you. And that's why I got kicked out of a lot of basketball games. But nonetheless, um, sharp elbows. Now, here's the deal. Um, you know, in soccer, if you're playing and your elbows are like this, that's a foul. If your elbows are like this, if you run into somebody, you can kind of bump into them, and that's fair. Let me say this, to mix the metaphor just a little bit. In basketball, those sharp elbows are fouls. Same in soccer. Uh, but we realize that we're going to bump into people from time to time. There's going to be some contact because life is a contact sport. But there is a choice here whether we throw our elbow up or keep it down. There is a legal touch and then there is an illegal one. And I just want to say this. Sometimes we can't tell in the moment, in the heat of the battle, whether the elbow was up or down. But if we do cause a bruise, we need to realize in those disagreements, those are important when someone else has been hurt. 
And we need to ask the question, in our disagreements in the church, are we trying to win or are we trying to honor God? I know many times over the years in church, you know, being a pastor, I've had some hard discussions. And I have to tell you, just like in sports, you know, I'm tempted to do whatever it takes to win. And, and sometimes when we have verbal gifts and we have abilities in debate and things like that, we think that's a good thing, but we use it with elbows up. And let me just say this, that, that, that I, I'm only saying this because I know I've done it many times, but we need to realize that the goal is always to honor God in his kingdom. You're a citizen of the kingdom and the restoration of brothers and sisters in Christ, that's your job. Christ wants things done here on earth as they're done in heaven. There is peace in heaven. There ought to be a little bit of peace on earth, especially in the church. And notice the people who are involved. Everybody referenced are all people whose names are in the book of life. So what that means again is, is that even believers can sometimes get on the wrong side of an issue. Believers can sometimes allow their hearts to take over and forget that it's about the kingdom. And that means we're human and that God is gracious to us. And he's challenging us through these two women 2,000 years ago, a fight from 2,000 years ago. An ordinary issue in the church is a reminder to us that we have a right and responsibility to agree in the Lord. So if we are going to agree with the Lord, what does that look like? Well, we have to find God's way of life. Now, it may come as a shock to you, an absolute shock that the first element, and there are three here, in terms of what is God's way of life, the first element of this is joy. The book of Philippians, imagine that. We're gonna talk about joy again. Um, It is a key part of this book and the first step in taking on God's way of life. If you really are serious about being a Christ follower, if you are serious about doing things God's way, then you need to take seriously joy. Paul, later on in his life, he keeps talking to the Philippians about joy and about rejoicing. And here in the language of the text, it's not some short-lived, sunny day, sort of silliness kind of joy, but he's talking about deep, abiding joy, the kind of joy that is infectious, the kind of joy that really makes a difference everywhere you go. This week it was interesting. I, I wasn't reading for this sermon, but, but I, I read an old sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said this. He said, the world will hardly, noticed, will hardly notice the organized efforts of the church, but the world, they, will pay attention to a church filled with a spirit of rejoicing. And then he goes on to make this claim, which is bold, but I think I agree with him. Christianity conquered the ancient world with joy. I mean, that's powerful. How does a bunch of ordinary people like Euodia and Syntyche, how do they uh, change the world? Well, they were filled with joy. They made a difference everywhere they went. And I'm here to tell you that it really does start simply. We need to make sure that joy is the default setting of our souls. If we are truly on fire for Christ and filled with his love, then some of his joy must flow from us. In the context of church conflict, Paul is suggesting that joy is not only possible, but it is required. Uh, Again, I say rejoice. The only 
In fact, if there is a command here, I said earlier that Paul isn't really bossy with these two ladies, but if there is a command, it would be to rejoice or to be happy in Jesus. So the only thing that's maybe a command is be happy. And I would say to you as a command, be happy. And I know it's not easy because sometimes life doesn't allow you to just be in that default setting of happy. Some days are hard. Some days you find yourself in the mud. Let me show you three passages that show different emotional states, all three of which move us still in the direction of joy. Psalm 40, 2 through 3. Listen to this. Uh, The psalmist says, he lifted me out of the slimy pit. Out of the mud and mire, he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. The psalmist is showing us here that even when we're stuck in the mud, when we are experiencing the emotional pit, there is a way to to get out of that, and that is the praise of the Lord. We find joy in the midst of suffering when we understand that God is our rock. The world is not secure but God is. Now notice 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, let me tell you what this passage is aiming at. We have to have joy even when there's intellectual doubt. Like, there are going to be times where the enemy is going to say, are you sure that Christianity is the only way? Are you sure that you are saved? Are you, are, are you sure that you're called to this ministry? Because sometimes when we're not experiencing success, we might say, well, maybe I've missed it. Maybe I'm not supposed to be in this place. And the devil loves to sow seeds of doubt like that. But Peter is saying, you may not see him moving right in this moment. You may not hear his voice as clearly as you would like, but just keep moving in that direction and realize Realize that your salvation is being worked out even on the difficult days. And then thirdly, look at Nehemiah 8.10. This is simple. The joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, we just need that baseline of saying, where am I strong? Only when I am in the joy of the Lord. It has to be in the Lord. And Paul says, again, I say, rejoice. That's the first thing. We have to have joy. If we're going to walk the Lord's path in this life, we have to have joy as the default setting. The second thing we need to see here, or second step, is we're told to be reasonable. Now, notice this. This is interesting in the context of an argument. Uh, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, in context, uh, these two women have had a disagreement. The first thing Paul says, if you want to get on the right track, is find joy again. And then the next thing he says is to be reasonable. Now, what does that look like? What does that word mean? Well, in the most simple way, it it means sound judgment or humility or patient steadfastness. But all of that seems a little bit cumbersome. I like this definition. I don't know from whom I stole it from, but it's out there. It's been out there for a long time. It's been said so many times. I'm not sure anybody can claim it. Um, uh, This word reasonableness can be translated grace under pressure. So have joy... And then assume that life is going to put some pressure on you. And when it does, you need to be reasonable. You need to exhibit grace. Now, it is easy to exhibit grace when you feel good and things are going your way. But obviously, as we see in this ordinary situation in the life of the church with two ladies fighting, there's pressure. Pressure that comes because of the the fallen condition of the world, the fallen condition of my heart. It causes pressure on the system. 
And so we need to learn how to be gracious under those pressured situations. So what does that look like? How how can we be gracious under pressure? Well, I think A.W. Tozer, who, by the way, if you ever find, you often find his books in like used bookstores. If you ever see his books in bookstores, pick them up, buy them. And if you don't, if you already have that copy, if they're like for like a dollar or a quarter, go ahead and buy them and give them away because people are reading a bunch of stuff they don't need to be reading. And A.W. Tozer is something they need to be reading. Okay? Give people good books. It's a wonderful thing to do. All right? Um, but nonetheless, um, this particular quote, I think, shows us how we get to the place where we can have grace under pressure. He says, be keenly aware of your self-sins. Notice this. To be specific, he says, the self-sins are self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, and many more besides. I think it's pretty obvious here, too much self will lead to too little reasonableness. Too much self is a recipe for being unreasonable. We must let go of self. Sacrifice is the way of Christ and the way of Christians. Tozer warns that self can live unrebuked at the very altar. He says even those who are coming forward into the altar, if they're not careful, they will not even see the self-sins. It is hard to see the self-sins, well, because it's self. It is so easy to find those sins in other people say, oh, yeah, they've got a problem. Oh, yeah, 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 they don't have it together. The more we say things like that, just to me, the more I'm saying things like that, I know it's the less I'm looking in my own heart. And it's those selfish desires of your heart that will lead to unreasonableness. The friction often occurs in relationships because one or the other or both are being selfish. They're not opening their minds and hearts to the voice of the other, the concerns of the other. I think this situation here in Philippi had a lot of that going on. So what do we do to get rid of selfish desires? Well, D.A. Carson, I'm quoting from all all the big guys here today because they have better things to say than me, but he has these three questions. Diagnostic in a sense, but very helpful in my view. What would motivate us to adopt God's way of life? Well, first, ask this question, what would you be doing, what would you like to be doing when Jesus comes again? Second question, what would you like to be saying when Jesus comes again? And third, what would you like to be thinking when Jesus comes again? Notice the theme here. You need to start acting, thinking, living like Jesus could come back today. Because the Bible says right here in this passage that the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Paul says, be reasonable. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. And wouldn't it be a shame if Jesus came back, Euodia and Syntyche, what would it be like if he came back and you two were still fighting? That's not okay. And that's what we need to realize here. We need to be reasonable. So the way of God is joy. Grace under pressure kind of reasonableness. And the third thing is, to be anxious for nothing. Oh, this passage, and let me just say by way of confession, I'm going to say some very pointed things to you about this, but I don't want you to hear these pointed things coming from a person who's defeated anxiety or lives an anxious free life. In fact, 
I know this is one of the great struggles of my heart. So I am saying this to you, but I'm saying it to my own heart as well because Paul's words here are very, very strong. He doesn't give us wiggle room. He doesn't say be anxious about the important things. He doesn't say, you know, let, let uh, you know, the little things roll off your back. Just focus on the big things. He says don't be anxious about anything. But my guess is it's that kind of anxiety and fear gobbles up a lot of your day just like it does mine. I don't know who said this. I've heard it again many times, but I think it is a truth you need to hear. Anxiety is practical atheism. All apprehension and fear are marks of unbelief. Now, I want to I try to temper that a little bit because I know that some of us, for whatever reason, because of our background, maybe because of our genetics, are more predisposed to anxiety, and I am not wanting to throw anybody under the bus. If this is something that's in your heart and crippling, I don't want you to hear me just castigating you like you're a lower level of Christian because you have anxiety. I think I've already shared with you, this is one of the great, great struggles in my heart. But I've had to come to terms with the fact that the more I worry about stuff, the less I'm trusting in God. And the only antidote, if you notice in the text, to anxiety isn't, you know, there's really nothing you can do but pray, give supplications, give thanks to God. The only answer to anxiety is to talk to the God who's in control and believe he is in control. And if you don't do that, if you don't go to God when you're anxious, then you're going to stay in anxiety. And you can't be walking with God and, and exhibit these kinds of things like anxiety. If that's who you are, people need to see you as a person of prayer. Your trust is in God. Yeah, you have the normal worries that every, every other person has in the world. But at the end of the day, you're trusting in the Lord Pastor Hosey was in our first service today, so I got more amens in that service than I got in this service. But anyway, um, that was good. I needed that. But, um, you know, we were talking about this and, you know, just talking about how many times Christians, the most godless part of their life is at home. Like, like, like the, the reality is, is that we pray when we're at church or with our small group and everything, but are, are we living that at home? And let's say this, let's say you are going through a season. Let me say today, maybe you are in a, an excessive period of anxiety in your life. You're going through one of those seasons. Well, D.A. Carson's again says this. He says, three minutes of quiet time won't chase away your anxieties. So what's interesting to me is, is that many times when we're the most anxious, we are, we are not delving into more prayer. We tell ourselves we're anxious and then we, we try to read our way out of it or go vacation our way out of it or whatever you do to find a way out of it, but we're not spending time with the Lord. We are proud to tell people that we are with the Lord every day, but I'm telling you, many of us, we're spending a couple minutes of scatterbrained prayer and then we're kind of shocked that we have anxiety. We need to realize that if we have serious issues, we need to go to a God who can seriously fix those issues. And if your anxieties this morning are many, shouldn't your prayers be many also? God's way is joy, grace under pressure, and a prayer life that kills anxiety and feeds thanksgiving. That is the way of God. 
But let me finish with this. If we are going to avoid those issues in the church, if we are going to avoid tension in the church, we have to accept a peace that passes all understanding. To rise above the chaos of sin, we need the peace of God. But what's interesting here is, is that I'm asking you to consider and be reasonable with me and to be rational and to consider a peace that's beyond rationality and that which can be understood. So basically what we're saying here is, is that the peace that God wants to give you is not the sort of peace that I can give you a textbook definition. I can't give you a good Hebrew word, a good Greek word. I can't go to a philosopher. I can't even string together 25 verses about peace and you walk out of here and say, oh, I feel better now. No, the peace that passes all understanding is not so much a work of knowledge, but it is a work of surrender. It is to believe because it passes understanding, which means that you need to have faith that the peace of God can overcome the anxieties of your soul. This is not something that I can give you an ABC one, two, three. I told you at the beginning, at the very, very beginning, that, you know, we all love epics, but we live life in the ordinary. And one of the things the Lord has been speaking to my heart, in fact, I'll just say it, I think the Lord has been giving me peace about is that, you know, he created me to be pretty ordinary. I think as a young man, I, I wanted to prove because of where I came from or, you know, just, you know, just a little chip on my shoulder. I had to prove that I could read more, know more, or work harder than someone else. And I have to tell you that, that, that the last couple of days, the Lord has shown me where that isn't going to get me anywhere. Like, the, like, hard work is a good thing. I mean, trying to be a better preacher, it's, it's a good thing. You being a better parent, it's a good thing. But at some point, you need to realize you're just ordinary, and I'm just ordinary. And when, when things happen in the church, when revival occurs, when spiritual renewal takes place, God does the extraordinary through the ordinary. So what we need to do today is, is not feel guilty about things we haven't done or, or I need to pray more or read the Bible more or go to church more. All those things, by the way, are good. But realize that these stepping stones I've given you, this path that, that, that we've discussed here today, there isn't a, a mechanical way for this to all work out. Ultimately, what has to happen is you need to embrace the fact that if you do all the work of the kingdom in your own strength, you will only go so far. You are saved and you're going to heaven and amen. But I am convinced that the world needs you and me to walk a little closer with God. I am convinced that the world needs me and you filled with joy unspeakable, with gracious reasonableness, that we will be a people not shackled by our anxieties and we are projecting the peace that passes all understanding. And I am convinced that we will not do that well and we will not achieve the kingdom work we're called to do until we admit we're ordinary and accept the Holy Spirit's power. The church today, she can be led by seminarians, people with degrees. She can be led by hardworking men and women. 
But the church, to change the world, needs to be filled with the power of God. And an ordinary situation, two women at odds, opens the door for us to discuss what could be, what could happen if we really did die to self, if we did put the kingdom's desires, Jesus' desires above our own, imagine what that would look like. (laughs) The world is a broken place. The last few months, we've looked over into Eastern Europe and we've seen war and suffering and chaos. We did our best to try to help, and we were. We were at least a drop of, of help in an ocean of need. But don't we sometimes feel like it's just too much? The brokenness is too great. The responsibilities are so far beyond us. Yeah. But let me say this. In the next 24 hours, you're going to brush up against some people who just need a little bit of joy, a little bit of grace, and a little bit of the peace that passes all understanding. And you may not be able to heal the world but you can heal the person nearest to you. You can be an agent of grace and forgiveness in your context. That seems like an ordinary thing to me. But I'm convinced that an ordinary thing like that won't happen until a supernatural filling of the Spirit happens in your life. And I pray that'll begin today. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us, or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.